Good morning, church. It is good to be together today. If you're a guest here, welcome. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and uh, you, you've picked a good day. We're just going to start a new series in the book of Proverbs, a great book. But before we open up Proverbs, I just want to give a shout out. There's been a lot of exciting things going on around here this summer. And so I know a lot of you were part of our two soccer camps. You were hosting some of the Chicago Eagle coaches. Maybe you took your kids or invited some of your kids' friends to be part of that. It's been a great summer again of leveraging the game of soccer to introduce and point kids to Jesus Christ and God's love for them in Christ. And then we had 28 of our own middle school students. We hosted Madison Mission right here. And then there was a bunch of other kids from other youth groups that came. And we had middle school students serving all across the city. It was awesome. And then we had a group of high school students that just got back from New Orleans. And they were serving with Castle Rock Community Church. And then a vision trip down to Honduras. That team just got back last week. And they've been scouting the land. They're looking for possible partnerships and opportunities for us to serve. So it's been great. And all these ministries go on because of the generosity of God's people in this place. So thank you. And just a quick financial update as we get into this last month of our fiscal years, we have five weekends left. Um, we're, we're kind of in a place where we need some really strong giving. We have $450,000 that we need to make up to end this year strong to begin next year. So thanks for remembering that, considering it, and for continuing on your generosity. And for those of you who haven't joined us in that, uh, we just hope that you'll uh, find that these works that we're part of for Christ would be things that were, are worthy for you to join us in. So thanks. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us in your word that as we come to your word, we shouldn't just listen to it. We should submit to it and be willing to do it. And so we don't want to be hearers of your word today, just hearers. We want to be doers. So help us to believe that your word is a good word for us, whether it corrects us, whether it exhorts us, and may your word train us to do right and good in this world. And for the things that are on our mind and maybe just distracting us from hearing from you, thanks that you're big enough to handle those things and we just give them to you right now. May the words of my mouth, Lord, the, uh, the motivations and meditations of my heart, may they be pleasing and help your people today to love you more. In Christ's name, amen. So Proverbs, I love this book. It just tackles the everyday stuff of life. It gives us insights and helps us understand how this world that we live in that's broken and twisted and messed up, how it works, how it should work. It actually gives us more than knowledge. What we're going to find out is God's wisdom gives us a skill for living rightly with God and others. It helps us live in such a way that we're actually honoring God and we're living an honoring life to others that's attractive to them. So it's practical, far more than it is theoretical. So consider that Proverbs is going to bring up things like, how do we deal with debt, the balance of our credit card? It addresses that. How we conduct ourselves in business. How do we fill out an expense report? Our conversations, our attitudes, our attitudes toward a neighbor, our attitudes towards the poor. It talks about sensuality, our sexuality. It talks about alcohol. It talks about gangs. It teaches us how to choose wise friends, how to lose bad friends, and how to be a good friend. 
It enters every relationship we have, starting with our relationship with God. It penetrates every nook and cranny of our lives, who we are on the inside, who we are on the out. It shapes our character. It motivates and moves our hearts. It informs our decisions. It's for those who are single, those who are married, those who are parents, those who are children, young and old, the simple and naive and the wise and discerning. We need to hear wisdom. Do you know that? Do you come in here today going, man, I need wisdom. I need wisdom. I've got some stuff. I've got a decision. I need some, some wisdom, God's wisdom. That's what Proverbs is all about. You know, you need wisdom when you've come to a situation and realize it's not just a moral choice here. It's not just about right and wrong, right? When you're trying to figure out where should I go to school? What should I study? It's not a moral question, but I need wisdom. What's a good decision here? What's the wise decision here? You need wisdom when you have a job offer or a promotion, or maybe there's a couple of job offers. You, ah, what do I do? Do I take it just because there's more money? Do I take it because, hey, man, it's San Diego, and it's sunny, sunny in 72 every day in San Diego. I love that. How do I make those decisions? Where should we live? Should I invest in this opportunity? Should I not? We need wisdoms for the situations that are gut-wrenchingly hard. Like my brother-in-law had to talk to his dad, who's now 101. His dad is like one of the heroes in my life. He actually was a pastor when I was a young boy at Winneka Bible Church. So his dad now is no longer able to live, live in his own senior apartment. He's, he needs another level of care, actually a couple levels of care. How do you have that conversation? How do you have the conversation with one of your adult kids who's making decisions that we know, choosing a path that we know go against God's word and going to bring him in harm's way? How do we have that conversation with a child who professes to be a follower of Christ? How do we have that conversation with a, with a child who's not a Christ follower? What do I say to someone? How do I respond to someone who's wounded me, deeply hurt me, wronged me? That's more than just getting it off my chest. Now I feel better. They know I'm really ticked off. How do I respond to them in such a way that the truth of Romans 2.4 would come into play that says the kindness of God leads to repentance, to change? God, what does it look like for me to respond to this person in such a way that they meet your kindness and that kindness actually does good in their heart? What does that look like? What do I say to my dying dad, who I, I don't think he knows Jesus? How do I get into that conversation? How do I share it in a way that he'd hear it and by God's grace, respond to it with faith? Then there are these things that aren't gut-wrenching, but they're really important, like, do I marry this gal? Is he the one? How do I know? Is it enough just that he's a Christian and he's breathing? Good, we're all, that's good. He wants to Check. How do I know? What does wisdom look like that? You got an opportunity to go into business with a partner. Should I do that? Is that a wise thing to do? Keller reminds us, Tim Keller, pastor out in New York, he reminds us that we live in a culture where on the one hand, you have the scientific secular culture that thinks scientific expertise will give you all the answers. He writes, it doesn't give the answers on any of these things, on most of the things that you need. On the other hand, you have people in the church who say morality is important. 
Well, of course it is. It's absolutely crucial, but it doesn't help you in these areas. The problem is not that you're lacking knowledge, smarts, or a moral compass, but that you don't have wisdom. We're perishing, he writes, for lack of wisdom. We need wisdom. God's wisdom. Because without it, we can chart a course. We can make decisions that have some really dire consequences. It's a good question to start framing. What is the wise thing to do? Not what is the worldly wise thing to do. What is the wise thing according to God? God's wisdom. What's the wise thing to do here? I mean, I wish I'd asked that question. When I was up on the second floor of Edgren Dorm, back my sophomore year, and I got hyped up with all the guys to, uh, to do something really stupid. I didn't think about it. Is this the wise thing to do? Because we were just like, this is so cool. We're going to go sliding down the laundry chute from the second floor down to the basement, all three stories. And I knew I wasn't going to be like as reckless as my friend Mike Hoffner, who became a Marine. And it, you'll understand why he became a Marine. Because he went down face first. I said, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's what, you know, what do they say? That the brain of a, a male doesn't fully form until he's 25. So we had some ways to go. You know, we're like 19 here. So you got to remember that. So I get in. I get in. I go, this is going to be awesome. And they said, you know, it's kind of small, but it's big enough to definitely slide down. And to slow yourselves down, just kind of, you know, put your arms against it and the friction will slow you down. So, so what I didn't know is at the same time I'm getting into this laundry chute, my buddy Kurt is down in the basement pulling a prank. And he takes all the sheets and blankets that we'd piled up under the chute just in case. You know, he moved those all out. And then he went and got an old-fashioned fire extinguisher down the hall that was just like filled with water. And he starts spraying so, you know, I'm going down. It's good. You know, second floor, I'm, it's good. It's, I can control my descent, and it's working, and this is cool. And then I hit the first floor, and it's like all wet, and friction doesn't work when the inside lining of this, this metal chute is wet. And I just went, boom. I just went from the first floor to the basement. Now, you got to understand that when it came out of the ceiling of the basement, it, it went all the way down to about... Here, three feet, you know, above the floor. So you got to get this picture. I didn't land and kind of roll out of it. I did a wily e. coyote thing because I'm still in the chute when I hit the ground. So 20 years later, the doctor says to me, Can you think of any reason why I can see some herniated discs on your MRI? And I'm going, Yeah, I, I can. So that's funny. That is true. I do have herniated discs. Um, but there's some decisions that we make that are a lot harder to navigate and come back from than herniated discs. A lot harder. I, I don't know why this father decided to do this. I was talking to a gal who was cutting my hair this week. And she said, yeah, five years ago, my parents split up. They're Christians. And I haven't heard from him since. I think he's living with one of my aunts. That's a big deal. 
you're in the throes of making decisions. You're in the throes of preparing yourself for decisions that you don't even know you're going to face. You need God's wisdom. You need God's wisdom. So grab your Bible. Proverbs 1 gives us the introduction. So Proverbs is in the middle of the Bible, all right? Check it out. You open your Bible in half, you're probably going to come into Psalms. It's just to the right of Psalms. If you get to something that says Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, or Isaiah, you're too far right, go to your left. Proverbs. Now here's how the 31 chapters work. Chapters 1 through 9 is an extended introduction. Chapters 10 all the way through 29 are the collection of the Proverbs written by King Solomon. Chapters 30 and 31 are the sayings of two wise men, Agur, some court official, chapter 30, 31, King Lemuel. All right, the virtuous woman comes from the pen of King Lemuel. So 1-1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Here's why he wrote it. For gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. This is the theme verse of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right, we're going to go back to 1 through 7 just a bit, but we got to lay the foundation here for our study in the book of Proverbs. So first of all, we're always asking when we get to a book, what is this book doing to move the storyline of the Bible forward? How does it connect? What is the connection of Proverbs to the storyline of the Bible, which you could summarize in the storyline of the Bible is the creator God creating a people for himself and redeeming that relationship through Christ all for his glory. God restoring all things to the right place through Christ. How does this book fit into that storyline? And here's how it does. It's part of wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's all part of wisdom literature. And what wisdom literature does is it applies the law of God that we have in the first five books to everyday life in our lives, in this twisted, broken world that we live in. It takes the law of God and says, and this is how you live out the law of God. So remember how Jesus summarized the law in the great commandment or the two great commandments? To love God with all your heart, right? Soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's telling us in this crooked world that's broken and twisted, that's been marred by our rebellion and sin, this is what it looks like to love God every day. So the logo has people walking on the street. You see it on the cover? It's because it, it just, this stuff comes to everyday life. What does it look like today, this week, in whatever you're called to do, in whatever relationship you have? What does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love my neighbor? That's how it forwards, moves forward the storyline. So it's primarily not about the nation of God. That's the history books. It's about the person of God, the individual follower of God. It's very intensely personal, okay? So it's more than knowledge. I say wisdom, you go, oh, old person with a lot of experience. 
Hmm? That's not how the Bible works it out. They may have wisdom. They may not have wisdom. Wisdom is not just about knowledge. It's about knowledge that's applied. It's the skill for living life. I, I love this definition. The skill for living a life that wins the favor of God and others. So we'll sometimes say, that person's got book smarts. They're really smart. Really smart. I mean, like IQ of a genius. But when it comes to street smarts, oh man, they just, they didn't get that part. So the book of Proverbs isn't just giving us street smarts because it is about knowledge, but it's not just about knowledge. So it brings the two together. The knowledge that we have that informs our mind, but it moves through our heart and it actually is worked out, lived out at the street level, day to day. So how does it work? What should we expect from this book? Well, we should expect the book is going to teach us how wisdom works in this world. It's going to remind us that this world was created, it's shaped, and the world continues to be shaped, and it needs to shape our lives, this wisdom that shaped the world. So look at Proverbs 3.19. You'll see it on the slide. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he, had, he set the heavens in place. So this is kind of a good construct. God created this world out of his wisdom. In his wisdom, he holds this world together. How this world works is not just reduced down to the laws of science and physics. It has to do with the wisdom of God of which the laws of physics fit under. Christ, the wisdom of God, was there, John 1 says, at creation. Proverbs 8 is going to personify wisdom as a person. And so this is what we need to know about the world that we live in. It's held together, designed by wisdom, and we ought to follow the patterns. The wisdom that shaped this world needs to shape my life. It's also going to set expectations as it teaches us how we are to live and how we should conduct ourselves, how we should expect this world to work as we find ourselves living in it. One of the things we should expect is hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs, Proverbs 10, 22. We should expect, whether we follow God or not, this is how it works. In this world, you hate people, it destroys relationships. You love people, you can forgive people, it preserves, it builds, it unifies, it binds relationships. That's just how it works in this world. Here's another one of how it works and how it will work. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 11:4. So when you think about that, here's what we need to know. Is Buffett's billions, they're not going to matter when he faces God. It's not like we get to the doorstep of heaven and God says, hey, look, there's some fines. Man, you messed up. You got to pay for the fines. Oh, okay, can I just put on my credit? It doesn't work like that. The wages of sin is death. We meet God and we're either going to die for our sin or we're going to say, I've always trusted in your son that he died for my sin. And so we understand that when we face God one day, whether he comes back for us or calls us home, that the assets that we have financially, they, 
There's no currency for that in heaven. That's good to know. Here's one last example. It reminds us how we should live. The righteous care about justice for the poor. Let me read that again. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Proverbs 29, 7. If we're part of God's family, we care about justice for the poor. So it teaches about the world that God made, how it works, how it should work. It sets expectations. It teaches us. It warns us. It exhorts us. All right, so how do we read? How do we read this? Because this is a different kind of genre. So this isn't history. This is poetry. How do you read poetry? Well, you look for the, you look for the images because the poet is painting pictures with words. So we're going to see some beautiful pictures, some wild pictures. So there's the picture of the sluggard asleep on his bed. He's just like a door that turns on his hinges. It's not going anywhere, that sluggard. He just flips from one side to the other. He is such a lazy guy, like a door on its hinges. Then there's this beautiful picture of a woman. It's not a beautiful, it's kind of a scandalous picture, but it's a great picture of this woman who's just, she's a knockout. She's just gorgeous, but she lacks wisdom. Here's the painting of a pig who's got a gold ring in his slobbering snout. That's ridiculous. Those two things don't give to go together. That's wasted beauty. A gold ring and a pig snout? It's wasted beauty. This beautiful woman who doesn't have godly wisdom and discretion. I love this one. I was thinking about this one when I caught up to the story of my brother-in-law telling his dad, 100-year-old dad, 101-year-old dad, about this coming change. So he, um, he decided to take his dad on a drive out in the country. They went to this lake that they'd gone to before and he was sitting there at the edge of the lake talking to dad and reflecting back on the last 15 years since he moved out to Freeport, Illinois. And he just went through all the different changes. And he talked to him about how God had been faithful through all those changes. And he said, Dad, it's time for another change. And he told him that. I just thought of this proverb. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word aptly, timely spoken. So look for the pictures. And when you see the picture, just be like an art student in an art gallery at a museum. Now, when you, when, when you love art, you don't go, that's a cool picture. Oh, I like that one. Ooh, that's good. Ooh, did you see that one? Hey, what do you think about this? No, a person who looks at art and loves art, they do, they do this. I know you don't, but they do. That's <laughs> what you want to do with a proverb. You want to just slow down, treat it like a Monet. It's just beautiful. It's this beautiful saying. It's got all this truth. It doesn't have every kind of, it's small, it's pithy, but just mine it. Get into the image, all right? Treat it like art. And remember, when you're dealing with Hebrew poetry, it's not about rhymes, it's about lines. Did you hear what I just said? It's not about what? Rhymes, it's about lines. So why did I rhyme the truth? It's not, I don't know. So remember that. It's gonna come in couplets usually, two lines. There's line A, there's line B. Pay attention to B and ask the question, how does line B sharpen 
line A? Is it like the opposite, a contrast, usually starting with the word but? Is it building on it? Is it saying the same thing with different words? So let me give you some examples. All right, class, chapter 7, verse 4. Turn over there. Chapter 7, verse 4. You tell me what you think is going on, line A, line A, line B. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. Is it saying the opposite or the same thing? I'll give you the answer. Same thing, just different words. So wisdom and insight go together. See that? Sister and relative. What's the proverb? What is it teaching? Hey, wisdom is just, you know, wisdom is special. You, should have a, you have a special relationships with siblings. You don't have that many siblings. You remember that. The special relationship you're to have with wisdom. Go to chapter 10. Verse 4. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. You see the but, you, are, you, are, you know right away. Oh, this is opposite. This is antithetical. This is a contrast. All right, lazy hands. What, what do you get from being lazy? Poverty. That's where it leads you. Hard working hands, what does it bring you? Wealth. All right? Uh, verse 7 of chapter 11. Hopes placed in mortals die with them. All the promise of their power comes to nothing. So what this is doing, it sounds like it's exactly the same, but actually it's giving you more. And it's reminding us that pinning our hopes on the promises and the abilities of people who are mortal is a foolish thing to do. We ought to place our hope in the one who's immortal, Right? So remember that, remember that. All right, so there's some dangers, there's some pitfalls. Here's the biggest one that happens all the time. People take a proverb and they claim it as a promise. Now what's a promise? It's God's guaranteed word that is always true in all times with all people in all places, always. You can bank it. That's God's promise. That's not how Proverbs works. They are general principles that are generally true most of the time with most people, but they're not a guarantee. So here's a classic, Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. She will not depart from it. So you've got a kid who's the prodigal. They've gone away from Christ, and you go, but I know. I'm just, I'm just I've got such peace right now that I know God and his word has promised that they're going to come back. They're going to come back. Well, you should find hope. I should find hope if that were my situation. You should find hope in those words. That generally speaking, they'll come back to the truth and the foundation that you've laid and that by God's grace, you're living out. But it's not something you can take to the bank. So remember, it's not a promise. It's a biblical principle that is generally true most of the time. There's another problem that we need to avoid and pitfall and that is and this is true not just in poetry and proverbs uh, but especially in poetry and poetic language um, is that we take a figure of speech an expression and we think it's literal and we understand it literally so let me give you an example proverbs 6 verse 27 it's up on the screen can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned the answer is obviously no can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. So you go, oh my goodness, I bumped into a woman on my way into church. I touched her. I'm going to be, no, no, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about 
sleeping with another man's wife. He just said it in a different way, touching. It's a euphemism for having sex with another man's wife. So we don't want to take stuff out of its context. We believe the Bible is literally God's word, all of it true, but we still use the laws of grammar and the understanding of how language works as we understand it. So we interpret it in its context, and then here's the next thing. Not just in its immediate context, but in the broader context, because all we're getting here is one short little saying that is not giving us everything about moral purity. It's giving us one thing about moral purity. And the Proverbs has lots of other Proverbs about moral purity. Lots of other Proverbs on the subject of money. And that's where we're going this next five weeks. About money, about words, about work, about sex, about temptation in that area, about friends and friendship. And so you understand, hey, I just got one of the pieces within the collection. I, I ought to just circle around and go, what else does it say about this? All right. Uh, let's talk about the author, Solomon. Uh, the second child of David and Bathsheba. Remember, they lost the first one. God's judgment on David for his adultery and for his murdering of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He's the one when he was about to become king, met God, and God said to him, Solomon, ask me for anything you want right now, and I'll give it to you. And he just, he was so good. He was so smart and wise to ask for wisdom. God, I need wisdom. This is bigger than me. I need wisdom to govern well. God said, wow, you could ask for riches. You didn't. You could have asked for long life. You didn't for honor. You could have asked for the heads of all your enemies and your father's enemies. You didn't. Because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you all the rest. I mean, he starts so well. Starts so well. Solomon, he's the primary writer. I mentioned already Agur and King Lemuel, 30 and 31. And it, the audience is his sons, the children of Israel. Hebrews 10 makes it clear that the Proverbs are written for the church today, for us. So why do you write it? All right, let's go back, finally back in chapter one. Verse two, why do you write it? What should we expect to gain here? Gaining wisdom, that's that word gain here is intimate knowledge, to know intimately. It's the same word that the old King James said, Adam knew his wife Eve, intimate knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge of wisdom and instruction. And it deals with correction for understanding, deals with discernment. But I want you to notice in verse 3 that it's not just about categories of information, right? It's about living rightly, prudent behavior. What is prudent behavior? Well, it's doing what is right, just, and fair. So it's helping us know God's truth, his wisdom, so that we'll live God's wisdom, right? That's what it's doing. Right thinking that leads to right living. Who's it for? The simple, the naive, people that are often misled, easily influenced, gullible, people who lack judgment, think laundry shoot. All right, still with me, that's good. It's for children, young adults, and it's for the wise and the discerning. So you don't ever go, go well, man, I took that course. Actually, Summa cum laude, man. I just, I mean, I just, high honors. I nailed that. No, no, it's 
it's for life. You keep adding. You, you never have all the wisdom that is to be had. So it's for everyone. It's for you and me to grow wise, to live well. So then where do we get it? And that's that theme verse. Look at seven again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So you can see some of the parallels here and some of the things that are antithetical. And one of the things you'll note is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and that knowledge is connected to the wisdom that is despised by a fool. So how do you grow in wisdom? How do you get wisdom? It's by this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And then you go, I don't get it. What is that? I'm just supposed to be afraid of God? And then I get wise? Well, you're expecting me to say no, but I'm going to say, yeah, that's part of it. And that's a lost part in our day. So we trivialize God way too much. We bring him down to our level. We call him a bud. When when the Israelites feared God the first time, the context was God was speaking to the Israelites from the mountain where he told them that he was going to come into this covenant. It was like this national marriage, the people of God and God coming together. And he starts talking to them and they're so terrified by God that they cry out, God, please don't talk to us. We're going to die Talk to Moses. Let him talk to us. So the fear of the Lord, when it first shows up in the Bible, it's really interesting. It's the story in Genesis of Abraham having to explain to King Abimelech, the king of Gerar, why he lied and told the king that that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. Because he had a dream where God came to him at night and said, Dude, you're about to get zapped because you're about to take this man's wife into your harem. And he said, why didn't you tell me? Abraham's answer is this. Well, let me just read it. I said to myself, this is Genesis 20, verse 11. I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So no fear of God means Abraham thought that no one knew God was serving or worshiping God. They didn't have a relationship with this God. And so what you want to see is the beginnings of this path of wisdom is not going to grab a book because the book takes us to the God of wisdom and chapter 8 takes us to Christ, the wisdom of God, the personification of wisdom. And so it's about a relationship. It's about a relationship. And if you think about it, You know, when it comes to just being worldly wise, there's a lot of things that we know today because we hung out with mom and dad or a mentor or someone. And it it came through a relationship, not just from a book. And so it's a relationship with God where we see God for who he is and respond rightly. We see God as a holy God, but a merciful God. And so our response is reverence. It's affection. And it manifests in humble obedience. So here's one way that you could think of it. It's the loving response of a child of God who sees God for who he is and submits to him with all that he is, reverently obeying him in all things. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the principal part, not the first thing that you move beyond. It's the principal part that continues to mark us throughout our lives. And without humility, we'll never get it. If we think we're God, if we act like we're God, we are never going to tap into the relationship that brings us wisdom. So in Proverbs 22.4, it says humility is the fear of the Lord. So you cannot fear God without humility. Now, I love Packer's quote from his classic book, Knowing God. Not till we become humble and teachable, standing in awe of God's holiness and sovereignty, acknowledging our own littleness, distrusting our own thoughts, and willing to have our minds turned upside down, can divine wisdom become ours. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool despises wisdom and instruction. So we ought to fear God but we ought to love him and we ought to submit our lives to his good word, good word. The benefits are huge. It prolongs your life. It's not a guarantee. My buddy Jeff Perrine loved Jesus, died of these non-malignant tumors, young 40, leaving his wife a widow and his kids. It's not a guarantee. But you live a life of, of wisdom pursuing wisdom, it generally leads to a long life. It protects. It gives security from people who would lead us astray. It keeps us on the straight path. We're going to see the two paths, the straight one, the crooked one. We're going to hear the two voices, wisdom crying out for our attention, folly crying out for our attention. It protects us from those voices. It keeps us on the straight path. It brings refreshment, contentment, peace, prosperity, wealth, honor, life, the delight of God. Those are beautiful. Those are things we long for and need, wisdom. The danger is, though, that we despise it. That we would reread Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in these words. You know, it goes like this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And you go, well, my life first is I trust in me. I lean on me. And I am going to chart my own course because I'm the captain of my soul and the master of my life. That is foolish. That is despising wisdom. That is being uh, wise in our own eyes, going, I can handle this. I don't need God's wisdom. I think I know how to, how to do this. That's foolish. Let me tell you another thing that's foolish, another pitfall is that we slowly lose our way and that our heart's affection is turned away from a loving God who made us for a relationship with him and we start getting caught up in other things. I don't want you ever to forget this. Whenever you pick up Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, both, I believe, written by Solomon, the man who started so well and the man who just train wrecked, train wrecked. And it didn't happen in a day. I mean, you can't marry 700 women and get 300 concubines in a day. It happened slowly over time. You're just moving away, a compromise here, a desire inordinately placed on something other than God, looking someplace else, someone else, for satisfaction, for joy, for happiness. He, he ended poorly. He, 
He wrote it. You could memorize the book of Proverbs. That is not a guarantee that you are going to be wise. You get in with the wrong crowd. You start tuning your ear to the wrong voices. You start reading things that aren't of God. You can just slowly drift away. So he's got his son, Rehoboam, at his knees. He's saying, my son, my son, listen to my words. Heed my instruction. Bind them around your heart. And then Rehoboam takes over from Solomon. Guys, he doesn't get three days into his reign when there's this whole civil war and he loses 10 of the 12 tribes. He was a fool. He was a fool. And we got to be careful of just drifting and losing our way. So Proverbs says, you need to have the right attitude about wisdom. Treat her like a lover. Treat her like a hidden treasure. Treat her like a feast. Savor it. Search for her. Call for her. Look for her. Don't let her out of your sight. Get wisdom, though it costs all that you have. There's nothing more valuable in your life than wisdom. I just remember hearing this at dinner last night. Friends of ours were talking about how important God's word was in his dad's life. And he was on a job traveling and he had his truck stolen. Really nice truck. But that didn't bother him. What really bothered him was his Bible that was all marked up. He had to get his Bible back. He understood the value of God's word and the wisdom in it. Get it, guard it, hang on to it. It's your life. So what do we do with this? Well, let's just bring it home by going back to the beginning of verse 7. And the question is, do we fear God? Do I have a relationship with God? Reverence, affection, humble obedience. Does that, is that me? Is that my heart? So I'm going, okay, I got to ask myself some questions because I know the right answer. And it's easy to just say, yeah, that's me. So here are the questions I was asking myself this week as I was just contemplating this all-important question, do I fear God? Am I proud? Do I come off like I have all the answers? Now, the better people to answer that question for me are my children, right now my two sons. I wonder what they'd say. Am I open to correction? Oh, I think my wife probably has a better read on that than I do. Am I regularly in God's word? Am I in the word? More importantly, is the word in me? Am I actually living this out? Are there areas where I go, not that part yet, God. Well, maybe one day I'll give you that part. Here's one. Am I in relationship with godly people who could give me wise counsel? One of the questions that we often ask that is just dead wrong is, what do you think I should do? You don't want to know what they think you should do. The question is, What are the principles in God's word that informs this issue that I'm facing right now? And you don't ask that to a person who doesn't know God's word. You need friends who know God's word, are getting to know God's word. That's why we encourage you, get in a group. Students, you're going off to to school. You go, I'm too busy. You get to crew. You get to intervar. You get to a place of Christian community. This is written to do wisdom in community. Do you have that? Are you lone rangering it?
Robert Byerly on Father's Day 13 years ago took his young son Andrew who was two years of age at the time to the dealership where they would be picking up the new pickup truck. It was a great day. It was definitely a boy's day. They did the paperwork and uh, they were waiting for the car. They told them which spot it was going to be pulled into and so there they were against the building waiting for the guy to pull up the truck. Robert and his little son, Andrew. The guy's backing up in this, into the space there. And then a horrible thing happened. Instead of hitting the brake pedal, he hit the accelerator. And in an instant, Robert had only one choice. And he picked up his son, Andrew. And before he was crushed to death by that truck, he lifted him above the tailgate, saving his son's life. Father's Day, 2002, a few miles down from where we lived at the time. Andrew's 15. He's heard all the stories. He's read the clippings. And what he knows about his dad has set the tenor of his heart. I don't know Andrew, but there isn't a doubt in my mind that he doesn't have anything but Great love, admiration, respect for a man who died saving him. When we lose sight of the gospel, how God lifted up his son on a cross and with his son our sin, he died on the cross in our place. He was crushed for us. We lose our way into wisdom. And there are so many people around us that don't know the story. They actually don't know the story of God's great love for them in Christ. My concern is that we've forgotten the story. And when we know the story of our loving Father who gave His only Son, can you believe it, to die in our place to save us, that just changes everything. Changes everything and puts us on that path of reverent, affectionate, humble obedience. Let's pray. Father God, make us wise. We know that your word says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and you will give it generously. Give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see you. Give us an understanding to know that we need you. Thanks for the hard things that are complicated and complex that are beyond our ability. Thank you for those things that drive us to you, our all-wise God. Thank you, Jesus, that we can look to you to see what wisdom looks like. What would you do? Thank you that your spirit is within us. May it grow. Place us in communities and friendships where wisdom is near. And may we be people who live rightly before you, winning your favor and doing good in this world gaining the favor of others. Until you come or call us home, in Christ's name we pray.